Amen. If you have your Bibles again, if you turn to Psalm 73. As you're turning there, um, we've been going through the book of Psalms, uh, some different Psalms over the last several weeks. Uh, we looked at Psalm 95, instructing us in worship. We looked at Psalm 103, teaching us to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind us of, and as it were, pray ourselves and preach to ourselves so that we have God at the center. And today we get Psalm 73, which calls us to, uh, teaches us how to respond in the weariness of suffering. And the doubts that come with seeing suffering and injustice. It's written by someone who would be unexpected. Um, it's written by the chief choir director of God's people at that time, Asaph. Um, we don't know a lot about him other than he was the, the main worship leader. And he's processing a deep struggle that he had. And when the people of God would have heard his struggle, they'd been pretty surprised that he would have had this struggle and processed in the way that he did. And as we look at this psalm, we're called to think about how we process suffering and struggle and injustice. Salvation is going through a season of suffering. And we're all struggling with it at different levels. There's something going on right now called the Great Resignation where... 40% of people who were polled said that they're considering leaving their jobs in the next few months. And that's a lot of folks who, if they all left their jobs, it would destabilize a lot of businesses and society. But why are we like that? Why are we struggling with these things? It's because we're worn out and weary and suffering. And so how are we to process these things? And David, I mean, Asaph gives us a beautiful model of that in Psalm 73. This is God's Word. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure, pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and yet they increase in riches. Surely in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak in this way... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand these things, it seemed like a wearisome task to me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast before you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You uphold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would now use your word in our lives to transform how we think and live and pray and relate to you and all of life. It's a big ask, God, but we see through your son coming that you love us when you cause your spirit to dwell with us and to revolution our hearts and our minds and our lives. All for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. So growing up, I had this uh, sense that I used to watch actually a lot of TV, and I used to watch a lot of superhero movies, I don't know, Hall of Justice kind of shows, the cartoons, uh, some of you remember those, most of you are too young to remember those probably, you got the Marvel scenes though, and you know what happens in the Marvel movies? The good guys always win, at least in the end, and the bad guys always lose. And so, um, when Thanos took over the world, it made me really nervous. Like, is this going to be the one where it ends badly for the Marvel heroes? And yet I knew that surely Thanos has got to lose, but I didn't know how it was going to happen until the last movie, right? But the reality is, in this life, things aren't quite as simple as the cartoons were when I was a kid. Often life seems to end on the third Marvel movie where Thanos seems to win and the good guys seem to lose. And we see the things like that happening, how we'd respond to it. How do you respond to it? When we see the whole world suffering and we're just angry and frustrated at just the suffering of things, how do we respond? For those of you who have young children, I I know how your children respond. There are three words that they say frequently, especially if they have siblings. What are those three words? That's not fair. Okay, that happened this morning with my teenage daughters, even this morning driving to church. They rarely said it now. When they were younger, they said it all the time because they looked at, at the situation and thought it's not fair. And that's exactly what Asaph's struggling with right now. He's trying to, he's writing this down as a hymn for God's people to train us as God's people how we're to process struggle and suffering and injustice. Um, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the reality of doubt due to suffering and injustice, the responses to doubt from suffering and injustice, and we're going to look at the remedy for doubt from suffering and justice. So to begin with, the reality of doubt due to justice and, and suffering, due to suffering and justice. 
He starts out this psalm by stating a theological truth. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now there are a lot of places he could have gotten that from the Bible. Psalm 15 is a really poignant one where it says that pretty clearly. And he's saying, I know this is true in my head, but my experience is betraying this reality. Because he says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. I'm experiencing something very different in my heart, my experience, than, I, than I, something I know to be true in my head, in my theological grid. How did his feet almost slip? He tells us in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph started looking at how the wicked were prospering, doing evil and prospering. And he was wishing that he could prosper himself. That word prosper is the word shalom, flourishing. And yet he sees the wicked flourishing, but he's like, that was supposed to be what was this tagline for the people of God. Hashtag shalom, flourishing. Why am I not flourishing? Why are God's people not flourishing? Why are the wicked doing that? The flourishing. And then in verses 4 through 12, he unpacks what he sees with the wicked. Their circumstances are that they're prosperous. Verse 3, they have ease in death. Verse 4, healthy bodies. It's, it's interesting that he uses the word fat. And in our society, it's bad to be fat. But in their society, it was in vogue to be fat. Why? Why is thinness cool now and fatness was cool then? Well, they're both signs of uh, flourishing. They're both signs of wealth. And so the fat people back then were the cool people, not like today. But he said, I wish I could be fat like them. They have no troubles. Not only are their circumstances amazing, but their attitudes are terrible. They're proud, verse 6, greedy, verse 7, foolish, cruel, arrogant. And not only that, but they boast in themselves and they profane you. He summarizes it in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease, and yet they increase in riches. This is what he perceives. The wicked flourish, the righteous, and in particular, this righteous guy, Asaph, suffers. It's not fair. What's Asaph doing? Asaph is demonstrating the realities of doubt brought on by experience in suffering. Have you ever experienced that? Do you know what it is to doubt? Tim Keller um, reflected on doubt and he said a few things that I think are really relevant and I want you to hear. He said, doubt is ultimately spiritual vertigo. It's when we lose our way. We know something in our head, but our experience in life is telling us something different. It always masquerades as an intellectual struggle. But really, doubt is not so much about what's going in our head, about intellectual problems, as it is that, we're, that something we believe in our heads, the theological grid that we have that we know to be true at some level, is not jiving with what we see with our eyes and are experiencing with our lives. Our eyes see something that causes us to question what we know or believe. And yet, the funny thing is, is that what are we to do as Christians with our doubts? Well, that's kind of the whole point of this 
psalm, but in many ways, the psalmist demonstrates that it's good to bring our doubts in the open, at least with God. That there's a healthiness of processing doubt, not just shoving it in, not just stuffing it, but processing it with our close brothers and sisters so that it will help us to work through these doubts. But that these doubts are often mixed with sin as he reveals when he said, I was doing these doubts because I was envious of the arrogant. I wanted what they had. And often these doubts take deeper hold because we enter into situations that we shouldn't because we, we know in our heads we shouldn't go there, but we go there anyway because we think it's going to be different for me. I know everybody else has gone through the struggle has fallen, but it'll be different for me. Years ago, I was working in Washington, D.C. as an intern, and I had a senator. Uh, I got to ride in the little cars underneath the, the Capitol. It was really cool. And I was doing a, a, a tour for a family, and this college girl was there with me. She was going to meet her family. And a senator happened to get on the same card as I was on. I was like, man, this is so cool. It was um, a Senator uh, Graham from Texas. At the time, he was running for president, and so I started greeting him and said, hey, how are you doing? I hope you're having a good day. And the girl beside me said, uh, Howard, should I know this man? And I thought that was hysterical because the guy was running for president, and like the girl didn't know him. How would, how would it make this guy feel? But at the end of the ride, which was pretty brief, it was probably like a minute and a half or something, as he got off, he said, hey, don't let this place ruin you. Um, and that really stuck with me. What was he saying? Look, I, I came to Washington because I thought I could make a difference, because I thought I would be the one who's not influenced by the corruption. But on reflection, this place has kind of ruined me. It ruins everybody. And far too often, we can be like that with our circumstances that we enter into. We think... It's going to be different for me, but we fall in the same traps. And so doubt begins to take over. And so we all are marked by doubt. We all see things that seem unfair. They seem unfair to us. They seem unfair to society. They seem unfair to God's people. And so we struggle with looking at suffering and injustice. And because of that, we are filled with all kinds of doubts, all of us. So how, do we, how are we going to respond to doubt? How do we process the doubts that we have from suffering and injustice? Well, there, there are four that I see here, and I, I added a fifth one. Um, one of the things that people do when they sh- struggle with doubts, when they see injustice, is they have a propensity to fall away. Asaph admits that. Remember, this is the chief choir director writing a song telling about his struggles. Ask for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. What's he saying here? He's saying, I'm on a, on a mountain, and my feet are small, and the mountain's slippery, and the doubts, the envy, almost took me down. I almost fell away. At the heart of nearly all temptation, at the core of the doubt, is doubting the goodness of God. We see this. In the first, in Genesis 3, right? Why did he, Adam and Eve fall? It wasn't primarily because the fruit looked good. It looked just like the other fruits if you look at the description of them. It was fundamentally they began to doubt the goodness of God. 
And you and I can easily do that, especially in the course of a pandemic. Especially as we see others who are wicked flourishing and God's people suffering. Just imagine if you're in Afghanistan now. There's a, there's a tendency to want to just chuck the faith because we see hard things and we can't explain them so we, our feet almost stumble. We have a, a danger of falling away. There's another danger though within God's people that was probably true of Asaph at some point during his struggle but it's not true of what he's doing now and that's faking it. We can act like we don't have any struggles. Um, I remember when Melissa and I started dating, Melissa was going through a hard time and she didn't want to go into church. And I'm like, why wouldn't you go to church? This is where you need to go if you're struggling. She's like, well, people with struggles don't go into church, Howard. And I'm like, my goodness, I can never go to church then. But that's often how we feel. We got to put on a a happy face. We got to sing happy songs. This, this, This church does a little bit better job than most about adding some laments into the mix but like even with the church like ours it's a little bit more, more sober sometimes we can hide the doubts and struggles in a way that we fake it and push it down but it always shows up again There's, I watched a, too much football yesterday but in watching this show the football I saw this fascinating commercial maybe you saw it too it's these soccer greats and they're saying a lot of people are asking me, do I miss the game? Y'all seen this? Do I miss the game? And you know the answer is what? Of course you miss the game. That's what you spent your whole life nurturing the love around. Of course you miss the game. And at the end of the commercial, they say, we don't miss the game because we have EA Sports. I'm like, what a joke. But in many ways, it's, it can be like that with Christians. Maybe if you're... A, outsider today an unbeliever you've interacted with Christians and they were like I have no doubts and you're like you must not live in a real world and Christians have doubts that's normal to have doubts they're things that don't make sense from our experience and what we believe we have to mix the two and so faking it's not the, the right response a third response is ranting Facebook rants um, in many ways Asaph is saying, I felt like doing this with God's people. I felt like just going on a rant and saying, why is God rewarding the wicked and punishing me and all the other righteous people? But he says something fascinating in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak in this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If I just got and started ranting about the injustice of God, which happens a lot on Twitter and also on Facebook... I would have been unfaithful to your people. I would have betrayed you in a sense. So that's not the right response. Verse 16, he tells about another response he had. I was, when I tried to figure all this out, verse 16, when I thought about how to understand all this, it became wearisome to me. When I tried to get all the answers, maybe a Presbyterian response. I'm going to try to figure out how injustice and justice works and why why it all works the way it did, it, it just wore me out. I couldn't take it. I mean, I, I'm this way. I don't, if I have all the answers, I feel like all the doubts will go away. But the truth is, is that we can't get all the answers. There's some things that happen in life that just don't have good answers, that don't connect with what we know to be true about God 
in His ways with our experience, the ways, the experiences of those we love. You're not going to get out of your doubts just by thinking your way through them correctly. That's not to say you shouldn't try, but don't, don't think you're just going to think your way out. As Keller says, you didn't get into your doubts just through intellectual struggle, and likewise you're not going to get out of them just through intellectual struggle. You got into them through experience, and the only way it's going to get you out is experience. So what's the experience that's going to get you out of your doubts and struggles? Well, it's a good thing you asked. He tells us. And the way that we get through our doubts and struggles is by facing our doubts in the presence of the Lord, in dependence of the Lord. He said, I, I couldn't make sense of all this until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. What in the world does he mean? Went to the sanctuary of God. He doesn't really explain it a lot. Sanctuary means the holy place of God. He went to worship, in other words. We don't know if that was in the temple or in the tabernacle, but we know that, that a, for Asaph, when he went into worship, one Saturday as it were, it started making sense to him. And this is the key. The only way you're going to get through your struggle is through worship. And we'll explore this a little bit more later, but it's through entering into the holy place. Which brings us to the remedy for doubt due to suffering and injustice. How are you going to get healed? How are you going to figure it all out? How are you going to work through these things? It's by processing your doubts in the presence of God. When I came into the sanctuary of God, he says, two things started making sense. One, I perceived their end. What's he talking about there? Who's, who's the there? He's talking about. He's talking about the wicked. I thought I was about to fall. Fall away, that is. And I thought that they were in a secure place, but here's the reality that I realized being in your presence, God. Surely you place them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. This contrasts greatly with verse 2 and really with verses 4 through 12. I, I thought that they were flourishing, but they were really setting themselves up for a harder fall. I'm going to ask a question that's, that's obvious, but, but I feel like I have to ask it because all of us fall into this trap. Do you long to have the same treasures that the world has? Most of our lives as Americans are spent chasing after these things. And it may be different for, for some of us. Um, I long for community. When I watch the, the show Cheers, it identify with that. I want to go to a place where everybody knows my name. And they're always glad I came. And a lot of times places of the world seem like that's where it's found. The homosexual community, that's what they're seeking. That's why a lot of people go that route. is looking for acceptance. Every Saturday, there's football games. Tiger Stadium is an electric experience. What do you get when you go there? 
I belong to something that matters. People start, everybody's uh, together. If you go there and you're sitting in a chair, they score a touchdown, everybody starts high-fiving you behind the thing. You have no idea who they are, but they're really glad you're there. Okay, there's a sense in which I long for that kind of reality. Maybe it's that you long for the toys of this world, money. Much of our life is spent working and our work is meant to be an avenue for us to serve others as a means of serving God, but there's a part of it that we work to get money. We even have things like it wouldn't be called work if it wasn't hard, meaning if it wasn't primarily for money. And there are all kinds of ways that we look at how others are flourishing, maybe in their work or in money and the Bill Gates of the world and Elon Musk of the world. They're, they're, they're terrible people in many ways. But they flourish. And here we are working our tails off and we're struggling. But the truth is, is that if they're building their life around football, they're building their life around wealth. One day they're going to die. The, the, the uh, party ends, as it were. And terrible things await them. And that's a hard reality. And he didn't really process that. But he's struggling with why, why do this wicked flourish and the righteous suffering. And at the end of the day, coming into God's presence, it realizes, oh yeah, this is not the true story. The true story is is that those who are close to you flourish and those who are far from you get destruction. So that's what he realizes in the sanctuary of God. But the other part that he realizes is found in verses 23 through 28, especially 23 through 26. He realizes that the only true treasure he has is God himself. He says, yet I am continually with you. You've grasped my right hand. This is a crazy thing. Just a few verses before, he said, when I was struggling with these things, I was brutish before you like a a beast. While I acted like a beast toward you, you treat me like a son. Worship reminds us that God is chasing after us, that we are His. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me in your glory. You are for me, not against me. He always lets us in. He never lets us down. And so in the end, he, he cries out a beautiful confession. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? A lot of people want to go to heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven? The, the treasure of heaven is not going to be streets of gold, although that's going to be pretty cool. And it's not going to be just mansions of glory, although I'm sure we'll live in plenty of nice circumstances. But the glory of heaven is that you get to be with God, <laughs> the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You get to see the Trinity in all their glory. And, and all their glory is for you. You sense being loved more than you ever did by your parents. And some of you have experienced incredible love from your parents. But not only are you the only one I have in heaven, but beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Now that's a bold claim in light of what he said he was struggling with in verse 3, right? 
The true treasure, God, Asaph comes to the realization, is God Himself. And, and, and it's going to be the true treasure for sure when we get to heaven, but He's the true treasure here. I have no good except for you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and as I'm getting older, I realize my flesh and my heart will fail. One day we're all going to die. But you, but God is forever the strength of my heart and my portion. My, my true treasure is God Himself here on earth and in heaven. So coming into worship, all of it started making sense. That the wicked that he was envious of, it doesn't turn out so well, they're not to be envied in the end, right? And as for him, as for God's people, as for Asaph, as for us, we have God for us. We have the true treasure now and even more so hereafter. So how do we really know that we can believe this? How do we know this is really true? Well, for Asaph, it was a little bit complicated, right? He had the story of God. He knew that God made all the world. That's glorious. Everybody in the whole creation benefits from living in God's good world. That's now broken by sin, but it's still good. He had the testimony of God delivering His people and forming a people for Himself as He delivered them from Egypt and the Exodus and Remarkable. God establishing David as the king and expanding his kingdom, blessing his people, establishing them as God's people. But it was mixed with a lot of like hard things too. Just like our life, if we were to base the province of God and the goodness of God on the basis of what we've experienced, we'd have to say it's a mixed bag, right? There have been a lot of good things, but there have been a lot of terrible things too. And the older you get, it seems like the terrible things grow. More and more people die, get sick. Living a pandemic, more and more people die, get sick. So how can we know this is true, but we have an advantage that Asaph didn't have, right? Because there was one who came who claimed to be God, namely Jesus. And he lived a beautiful life. Of all people who've ever lived on the face of this earth, the one who deserved to be adored and embraced by the Father was Jesus. And yet, what happened to Jesus? God, as it were, let His hand go on the cross. God, my God, why have You forsaken me? cried out. But why did God forsake Jesus? And this is the craziest thing. This almost is embarrassing for me to say. It's so crazy. God forsook Jesus. He let His hand go on the cross. And he would never let your hand go. You and I deserve to be treated like rebels. But Jesus was treated like a rebel that we could be invited in as sons and daughters. Always. So He would never let us go. And He treats us like Jesus deserves to be treated now and forevermore because He's put us in Jesus if you've come to faith in Christ. If you've not, I long to talk to you that you've experienced that. But like, and so we see Jesus dying for us and then rising in our behalf. And so if what Asaph testifies to is true in his day, 
how much more true is it for us who live on the backside of Jesus? And so we see a beautiful truth when we enter into worship that the envious, that the rich are not to be envied like the world trains us to do in all our TV shows, all our commercials, etc. But instead, our true treasure is God Himself. So how are you going to begin to believe this? Like, not just now, but like in practice as you're struggling with these things. Well, that's the whole point of the, the psalm, right? The whole point of the sermon. Is it's in coming to worship. And it's, that, that means two things. One, when we come to worship, it's a serious thing. It should be a joyful thing. We should be so captured with God that it becomes believable to us. I used to have a seminary professor, Jack Collins, that said, why do you think we sing these outrageously beautiful hymns that tell of all these wonderful promises? Is it, do you have to like fully believe that in order to sing it? No, there's sometimes I show up and I, I hardly have only half believe it. I sing it to believe it. We worship because we believe in God, but we worship so that these things become more true in our hearts because it's in the experience of worship, experience of losing ourselves in the wonder of God, that these things become more true of us, in us. But there's a flip side, that the things that you fill your heart and mind experience with will begin to capture and consume your imaginations. What do I mean by that? I'm give you a couple examples. We live in COVID. I don't know if y'all heard, there's a pandemic going on. And there are all kinds of dangers with that. I mean, you can die from it. You can get sick and, and have to spend months, maybe even a year in the hospital. It can get in your lungs and you can have lifelong problems. And, and if, I, if you hear that every day for a year and a half, guess what starts happening? Fear. And some people are so afraid of that, they're, they're like, I'm not coming out of my house, like ever. And so some people haven't left their house in 18 months. Some people haven't, are just going back to school after 18 months. And I, I'm not faulting them, I'm just saying that that's what happens when we hear these things over and over again. Their imaginations have been filled with fear from COVID. There are others of us who are filled with COVID frustrations. The government's telling you all these things you can and can't do, you have to do. And if you don't do these things, you may not get to work. And, and if you turn on the right-wing media, which I'm not slamming that, it's every day you're hearing these things over and over again. Okay, it's, it's not healthy for our souls. Because it leads to what? Anger, irritability. The heck the government's going to tell me to do anything, and so like, we don't follow the speed limits, and we quit wearing clothes, or whatever. Like, I'm just going to rebel against all rules now. And I'm going to bring a knife after my head of school because they tell my kid I have to wear a mask. Um, the things we fill our heads with begin to capture our imaginations. What would happen if we had that same washing of our hearts and minds with the gospel? If every day we were washing ourselves with Hey, this is a crazy thing. God made you, his you in His image. And He loves you beyond compare. More than any human being loves you, has ever loved you, and will ever love you. 
He, so much so that he sent his son to Jesus to die for you. And Jesus did beautiful things in loving his people. The same thing he wants to extend to you right now and forevermore. And then he died for you at the end of his life so you could be secure and be loved forever. And he rose again so that you would be able to rise with him into a glorious reality where you'll never experience anything that's broken again. What if we wash ourselves in that reality over and over again? That's what worship does. Psalm 73 and Psalm 103 are really doing the same thing. Psalm 103 was saying, tell yourself, preach yourself the gospel to yourself. Here it's telling you the same thing, except it's a little bit different message. And that God's encouraging you not just to tell yourself these truths, but to pray away your doubt in His presence. Notice, it's not, He's not preaching to Himself. He's, it's as if God's in the room. Yet I am continually with you. You grasp my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me into glory. You might be in heaven, but you, there's nothing I desire on earth besides you. He's bringing his doubts to God. He's saying, God, these doubts are real and I'm overwhelmed by them and it's making me want to like chuck it all. But I, I know you're real and I need you to bring the reality of who you are into my presence. And so I'm going to remind myself of these truths in your presence and have you revolutionize my life through them. What would happen if we washed ourselves with the gospel the same way we've washed ourselves in COVID fears or COVID frustrations? Outrageous joy. We wouldn't be able to keep our mouths shut because we like, there's this crazy God and He loves people like you and me, even though it's completely the opposite of what we deserve. And we'd be filled with joy. How nice would that be? (laughs) Even the Presbyterians, we'd be tempted to sing out loud and shout for joy. And guess what? You're about to get to experience that here at the Lord's table. Because even though I've done a moderate job of bringing God's Word to you, every week at the Lord's table, something crazy happens. Jesus shows up. And He shows up to give Himself to you in order to wash you in these realities. I gave myself for you that you'd eat me and find life in me. Come, eat of me. I gave myself to shed my blood for you. Wash yourself in me that you might know that you belong to me. And I've washed you so you're clean now. You can walk out in freedom, true freedom to live for the glory of God. And so he concludes with verse 27, 28. Those who are remote from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may declare all your wondrous works. Calvin says this about Psalm 73. At last he concludes that provided we leave the province of God to take its own course, in the end, matters will assume a very different aspect. On the one hand, the righteous are not defrauded of their reward, but instead experience it to great fullness, incredible fullness. On the other hand, the wicked do not escape the hand of the judge. So what are you going to do with this? Start treasuring worship so that we show up with expectation. Expectation to meet God. Expectation that as we sing and pray the prayers and pray God's word and listen to His word, that God's going to use that to revolution our lot revolutionize our lives, not just as individuals but as a group but to really bring him our doubts 
and to process these doubts not in the ways the world does, the ways we're tempted to, but to process them actually in the presence of God, bringing Him these things and asking Him to make Himself real to us. He sent His Son. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us everything we need to experience Him as the chief treasure. Let me pray. Almighty God, I thank You for each person here. Lord, I confess that we forget You often and it's to our own detriment. And yet we come with broken hearts and broken lives and broken dreams in many ways and bring them to You and ask that You would revolutionize our lives. I pray that You even do that this this at this table as we partake of You, Christ, that You would wash us anew with You being the true treasure. The thing that we long for is found in You. Help us to experience that. And for all our guilt, You wash it away. You tell us to come and You'll forgive us fully and freely so that we'll go live for You. God, will You do these things? Will You make us mindful of You? Will You cause worship to be revolutionary in our lives? All for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.